Luke 9, verse 18. Once, when Jesus was praying by himself and his disciples were nearby, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, The Christ of God. But he forcefully commanded them not to tell this to anyone, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Then he said to them all, If anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you most certainly, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became very bright, a a brilliant white. Then two men, Moses and Elijah, began talking with him. They appeared in glorious splendor and spoke about his departure that he was about to carry out at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those with him were quite sleepy, but as they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. Then, as the men were starting to leave, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three shelters, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. As he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And then a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. So they kept silent and told no one at that time anything of what they had seen. Now, on the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Then a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son. He is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions and causes him to foam at the mouth. It hardly ever leaves him alone, torturing him severely. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Jesus answered, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you and endure you? Bring your son here. As the boy was approaching, the demon threw him to the ground and shook him with convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. Then they were all astonished at the mighty power of God. But while the entire crowd was amazed at everything Jesus was doing, he said to his disciples, Take these words to heart, for the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. Its meaning had been concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. Yet they were afraid to ask him about this statement. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment, as we're quiet together, uh, would you speak to us about your word? 
Lord, I surrender what I have to say to you. Um, Would you guide my words? Would you make it clear to this people? Would you prepare us, Lord, for what it looks like to follow you? Fill us with your spirit. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I warned you, but there's a lot in this passage, right? I mean, this scene where Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? And they give some wild answers about who the people, and then they give their answer. He tells them to be quiet. Uh, Then he gives them the call to discipleship, this famous saying about denying ourselves and taking up our cross every day somehow. And then he says, you know, some of you are going to see the kingdom uh, before you die. And then, you know, a few days later, a few of them go up on a mountaintop and, and Jesus starts glowing and two dead guys show up and, and, you know, a cloud comes and they hear God's voice speak to them and, and then they're not supposed to tell anyone about it. And, and then they go down the mountain and, and there's a boy, you know, who's, got, who's demon-possessed and, and the disciples, you know, the same guys who in the passage we looked at last week went out and cast out demons and cured people and proclaimed the kingdom and it all worked fine. Those guys aren't able to do it this time and so Jesus gets frustrated and he casts the demon out and then he talks about his death again. I mean, my goodness, there's a lot going on in this passage and and. The, this is, it's that scene where the disciples can't do it and then they don't understand what Jesus is saying, but for the, you know, even though they've asked him about things in the past, they're afraid to ask him about this. That starts a little trend. And the rest of the passage, the rest of chapter 9, is the disciples just bumbling along. I mean, it's, they have, they're just are having great difficulty. They're arguing about who's the greatest and, and Jesus, you know, says the thing I mentioned earlier, what, Welcome a child. That's how you welcome me. The, you know, it's the, this whole idea of greatness is sort of upside down in his kingdom. And, and then, they, then they get mad at a guy who's casting out demons, who, um, who isn't one of them, but he's doing it in Jesus' name. And Jesus rebukes them. And then they get rejected by a Samaritan town. And, and so they want to destroy the town with fire from heaven uh, somehow. And, uh, and Jesus rebukes them for that. And, uh, and then as they're walking along, making their way to Jerusalem, three other unnamed people come and they want to follow Jesus or Jesus invites them to follow him. But they've got some hesitations, some reasons like, well, let me say goodbye to my family first or let me bury my dad or, or you, know, what, uh, you know, or Jesus warns them, you know, that there's, the Son of Man is no place to lay his head. It's, it, the, the rest of the chapter is about the struggle of discipleship, which is really where this story starts, with Jesus giving this statement about what it means to follow him. And and the only reason we would want to follow him is based on the answer to the question that he starts with at the beginning. And often um, when, you know, when this passage is taught, you know, who do people say that I am? And they give the answer. We just sort of skip right over that to, uh, to the 
you know, who the disciples say. You know, you're the anointed one. You're the, you're the Christ. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the guy that Israel has been waiting for. God has chosen you and anointed you. We skip over the other answers. And as I've been studying this this week, I just think, the crowd's answers are crazy. Like, who, do the, who are the people saying I am? Well, Jesus, long and short of it is, they think that you are a dead prophet who's been dead for hundreds of years, who has come back to life and is going around doing your thing. Or maybe you're John the Baptist, who was recently executed by Herod, who's come back to life and is doing your thing. That's, that's who the people think you are. Uh, what? That's remarkable that that's what people have settled on for who Jesus is. But instead, he is the anointed one chosen by God. And he goes right from that. Of course, he says, don't tell anyone, which is a, it's just so interesting. All throughout Luke, how Jesus is kind of controlling the message. He tells this Gentile guy to go off and, and proclaim it openly in, in the Gentile regions, uh, you know, in the last chapter. But, but generally, when people kind of realize what's going on, he says, shh, don't tell people about this. Not yet. That's, that's a fascinating thing. And then he tells them what it takes to follow him. And, uh, and this, you know, this statement is, um, it's so big and so hard. Um, it's so clear in one way and so challenging in another that, uh, that it, it creates great static in my own mind and my own heart. Of course, it's this statement where he says, if anyone wants to follow me, wants to be my follower, they need to deny themselves and take up their cross every day and follow me. And and then he makes this warning about if you're ashamed of me, you know, the, the son of man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his glory. I mean, it's kind of, it's scary. This whole thing about discipleship is scary. And I, I don't want to buzz past this. The way Jesus describes what it means to be a follower of him, which is, which is just what Christianity is, being a follower of him, is huge and dramatic. Um, this many people throughout the ages have made great statements about this. Let me let me give you three from just sort of scattering around. Here's uh, the first one is from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is his famous statement. Of course, Dietrich Bonhoeffer died as a martyr in a Nazi prison. He says, "When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die." Oh, it disappeared but it'll come back. All right, also, um, we have this statement uh, from John Wesley. Uh, here's what John Wesley said. If we do not continually deny ourselves, we do not learn of him, but other masters. If we do not take up our cross daily, we do not come after him, but after the world or the prince of the world or our own fleshly mind. If we are not walking in the way of the cross, we are not following him. We are not treading in his steps, but going back from or at least wide of him. I mean, here's Wesley saying, this is it. This is what Christianity is. It's forsaking all and following him. A more recent author, Francis Chan, he describes it like this. There was no misinterpreting what Christ was calling for. 
This is why he had so few disciples. I mean, right? Uh, The call to follow Jesus was a call to die. The price tag was front and center. Jesus laid it out from the start and told people to count the cost. The expectations, if you look through the rest of the New Testament at the early followers, their expectation of normal Christianity is that it involves great suffering because we are following Jesus. And we read, you know, if you're a Bible reader, you read that stuff and you're used to it. And then we live pretty comfortable lives where we are not necessarily suffering because we are following Jesus. And all of the first believers, including Jesus himself, took it to be a matter of course that if we're following him, there's suffering involved. I just imagine, I'm trying to imagine what the disciples would have thought when Jesus makes this statement. They've just said, you're the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. That means you are the king who's restoring the kingdom of God to earth, which in their minds included the kingdom of Israel. This is who you are. But then he, you know, then so great. That's exciting. They're part of this movement. And then he says this thing about following him, and, and we don't get their response. So let me make one up. Uh, did you say cross? <laughs> what are you talking about? How do you take up a cross every day? You're asking us to take up the tool of Roman political torture and execution. It's the symbol of Roman domination every day. That, that would have been nonsense to them. You can only take up a cross one time. The day you're dying, the day you've lost, the day Rome executes you. Now, many of you have nice cross-shaped jewelry, so you take up a cross every day, and, and that's fine. Cross, it's, it, hopefully it reminds you of Jesus' sacrifice. That's its point. Sometimes we wear, wear crosses to identify ourselves with Jesus so that people will know. I, so I'm, I'm not mocking that, but I, I, I do think that the comfort with which we adorn crosses reminds us, can remind us of how far we have come from what the cross meant to these guys who are listening to Jesus Crosses for us can be signs of peace and devotion and faith. For these guys, when Jesus says this, they have seen their fellow countrymen who attempted to revolt against Rome. They have seen them naked and bleeding and suffocating on crosses on the outside of busy towns. They have seen them hanging there for days. Sometimes it took days to die. You cannot move your arms or legs, and so you are slowly suffocating, and and scavenger birds would be picking at their skin while they die. It is a horrific image. It is shameful and embarrassing. It is Rome's way of saying, this is what happens when you cross us. So Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, You need to be killed by our greatest enemy. 
That's what he's saying. I can't express how nonsensical that would have sounded to his disciples. And so we need to hold that together with what they're watching Jesus doing. Throughout chapter 9, Jesus pulls away three different times to pray, and he prays in depth, and his disciples see it, and he pulls them, takes them with him, and he goes and he prays for long amounts of times. Luke emphasizes how much Jesus prays. There's something about prayer that is for Jesus the way that he is walking this line of denying himself and taking up his cross every day. They're also watching how Jesus relates to his enemies all throughout this. In this study of Luke, something has become crystal clear to me up to this point. Jesus' first teaching, which is called in Luke the Sermon on the Plain, you know, in Matthew it's the Sermon on the Mount, the point of that sermon, the thing Jesus calls us to obey, if you could whittle it down to one statement, it is love your enemies. Love your enemies. And here he's telling them to die at the hands of their enemies. My goodness, so how does Jesus relate to his enemies? I mean, he expects his followers to be like God. He says, the most high is kind to ungrateful and evil people, so be merciful just as your father is merciful. And then Jesus goes on to heal the slave of a centurion, you know, a Roman soldier. He goes on to, you know, have dinner with a Pharisee and we'll figure out that those may be more enemies to Jesus than the Romans. He, he heals the daughter of a synagogue leader who is probably questioning Jesus' behavior on the Sabbath. Jesus is going to the very people who don't like him, who are nervous about him, and he's dining with them. He's feasting with them. This is how he loves his enemies, and he'll keep going at it. Okay, so scene change. A few days later, Jesus takes his three guys, the sort of inner ring, and they go up on the mountaintop. And, you know, they're there praying all night. And the other guys are falling asleep. But then something happens. <laughs> like, Jesus starts glowing. <laughs> and two guys show up. And somehow they know that it's Moses and Elijah. I mean, this is an amazing, this scene, uh, there's a Bible teacher I, I listened to, the, uh, the guy on the Bible project. And he always is talking about hyperlinks you know, which is kind of an, in the age of the internet. Uh, you know, there's a link that links to this and links to that. Well, this scene on the mountain has hyperlinks all over the Bible. I mean, I, I could spend hours and hours and nerd out on it. But uh, let me just tell you a few things that are happening here. Moses and Elijah are there. Jesus often talks about he, how he comes to fulfill the law and the prophets. All right, the law and the prophets is shorthand for the Hebrew scriptures. We think of scriptures in terms of a book. Maybe now it's an app, but we think of scriptures in terms of, of, of a bound book. But for the Hebrew people, the scriptures was a collection of scrolls called the Tanakh. And I have this on, on a, a slide. All right, the Tanakh. And the Tanakh, uh, it, it's, it's, um, it abbreviates these, uh, these three ideas, the, these three sets of writings. The Torah, which is, uh, you know, written by Moses in its original form. The Nevi'im, which is the prophets and which is represented by Elijah. And the Ketuvim, which is the writings. And the, 
the primary person of the writings is David because he wrote the Psalms and that's the main part of the writings. So that's the Tanakh. So Tanakh is just shorthand for the Hebrew scriptures. Well, here they are on the mountain. Let me get back to the mountain. And there's Moses, the face of the Torah. And there's Elijah, the face of the, the Nevi'im. Where's David? Where's David? Oh, there are three guys there who are glowing. Jesus is the third guy. Jesus is there representing David, representing David as the king, the one in glory. Jesus has said, you guys won't die before you see the kingdom of God. And there he is representing the son of David, the one who will be on the throne forever. But there's so much more about Moses and Elijah, and it connects all over this passage too. Moses and Elijah had both, they had some interesting lives. Let's talk about Moses for a second. You know, there's, there's a few, uh, next slide. There's just a, if you want to go look up some stuff about Moses, you know, there's a few scenes that connect to this scene. Uh, Moses was, you know, alienated and isolated from his people. He ran away from his people. That's the story in Exodus. He goes out in the wilderness and he's at a mountain when he starts talking to a bush that's on fire but not consumed and the bush is talking to him and, and that's where God calls Moses. He's there on a mountain when that happens. In Exodus chapter 20, the people have gathered at the mountain and and in chapter 20, they hear the Ten Commandments and there's this big cloud and it's so scary that they say, Moses, why don't you talk to God on behalf of us? And so Moses goes up the mountain and spends a long time talking with God and there's a cloud there on top of the mountain and for the next you know however long as they're traveling through the wilderness Moses would meet with God in the tent this place called the tent of meeting or on the mountain and when he would finish he would come out and he would be glowing interesting he'd be glowing Moses would have these times where he'd be up on the mountain and and you know, God would be speaking to him. And famously in, in Exodus 33 and 34, God interrupts himself and says, hey, you need to go down the mountain because the people have turned away from me. And he goes down and finds that they've crafted an idol and they're worshiping this idol because they thought that Moses was gone and had abandoned them. And so they've turned away so quickly. Elijah, similarly to Moses, had some remarkable moments on mountains. Elijah is a prophet, you know, during the time of the kings, you know, uh, um, uh, especially, you know, during, during uh, the reign of really of Jezebel, this wicked queen. And, uh, and so at one point, Elijah challenges all of the prophets of Baal, same name, same God as the time with Moses. And they have this big contest on top of a mountain. And, uh, and you know, the prophets are trying to get their you know, offering to light on fire and they can't do it and they do all sorts of things. That's an interesting story. And then Elijah just calls down fire on the um, offering and boom, God does it. But then he has to go on the run and he's alone and God calls him to the mountain of the Lord, which is in his day called Mount Horeb. It might be the same as Mount Sinai, you know, who knows? And he goes up on this mountain and there's 
a mighty wind and and there's a, a fire and 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 there's a, an earthquake and and the Lord isn't in any of those and then there's a whisper and Elijah realizes he's meeting with God he's having a conversation with God both of them met with God on the mountaintops and were pretty isolated and alienated from the rest of their people. In fact, when Elijah is up on the mountain, God says to him, why are you here? What are you doing here? And Elijah says, I'm the only faithful one left. I am alone. Everyone else has rejected me. Interesting. So Jesus interacts with these two guys And what Luke says is they're talking about his departure. That's the word exodus. They're talking about his journey, which will happen in Jerusalem. What are they talking about? They're talking about the crucifixion. They're talking about how Jesus also will be alone and rejected. So then he goes down the mountain and and there's this kind of chaotic scene happening. There's this boy with the demon. There, you know, I, I sort of picture people worried and shouting. And, and there's in other gospels, you see that there's like a group of Pharisees that are there watching and they're arguing about it and the disciples are there and they're, they're wringing their hands and the father is pleading and crying out to Jesus. And even as Jesus calls the boy, you know, the, this like demon moment where the boy has this major convulsion and it's this scary, chaotic moment that's happening. And all of this happening should remind you of this scene in Exodus where Moses gets called down from the mountain and there's chaos at the fire and they're all worshiping Baal and this is happening. And the father of this boy says this interesting thing. He says, my only son, Lord, this is my only son. And why does it say it like that? That's the second time, just in the last chapter, a father came and says, my only daughter is dying. Now, this father says, my only son is dying. And in the writings throughout the Old Testament, God often refers to Israel as his son. And here is, is this scene, this very real scene. It's not figurative. This isn't fiction but it's a representation of Israel being thrown about, cast about, beaten up. When Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverse generation, I don't know who he's talking to. Is he talking to the disciples? Is he talking to like the father and the son? In a way, he's sort of connecting this to that same, that generation that worshiped the Baal before. You're an unbelieving and perverse generation. How, how much longer must I endure with you? Bring him to me. And he casts out the demon. And then he looks at his, he doesn't revel in it. He looks at his disciples and again predicts his death. And they're afraid to ask him about it. So, as I said, we didn't read the rest of the chapter. But it shows us these pictures of failing at discipleship. That's what it shows us. It shows us pictures of failing to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. 
So I'm going to refer to it, and if you have a Bible, you can look at it. But starting in verse 46, the disciples are having this argument over who's the greatest. This is an interesting moment, but it kind of makes sense. Jesus has just told them, I'm the anointed king. A few of them have seen him represent David. They, and, and then he, may, he decides, let's go to Jerusalem. We kind of skipped that. that happens in, it, it'll happen in a few verses. In verse 51, he says, let's go. We're headed to Jerusalem. And so, of course, they're arguing about who's the general, who's the chief of staff, who's the, the advisor to the king. You know, like, who's on the inside of this royal court that's being set up? We've got to sort this out. Who's... Who gets to do what? And Jesus shuts them down by using this picture of a child. Friends, here's the lesson about denying ourselves. Whenever a believer or group of believers seeks to gain power or privilege over one another, we are no longer witnessing to Christ. We are no longer denying ourselves and following him. The last will be first. As soon as we start considering where we rank amongst one another, we're not denying ourselves anymore. That's the lesson. In verse 49, they, they you know, try to get back in Jesus' good graces by saying, by telling on another guy. Jesus, we saw this other guy casting out demons in your name. Nanny, nanny, boo, boo. And Jesus says, guys, don't stop him. Uh, whoever's not against you is for you. He's laying out what it looks like to be united with other believers. Littleton Christian Church is one small part of the great body of Christ. But whenever a believer or a group of believers tries to silence or condemn other believers because they're practicing the way of Jesus in a different group or in a different way than we are, we are no longer witnessing to Christ. We're no longer denying ourselves and following him. He blesses humble unity. That's part of denying ourselves. In verse 51 is the scene where they go to a Samaritan village. The villagers who don't like Jerusalem find out that they're on their way to Jerusalem and say, sorry, you can't stay here. And so his disciples say, Shall we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? They're like Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's destroy this trash. And Jesus rebukes them. Same language as how he cast out the demon, by the way, that had the boy. He rebuked the demon. Jesus rebukes them. Brothers and sisters, whenever a believer or group of believers seeks to punish a person or community or town or whatever, for rejecting Jesus. When we seek to punish someone for rejecting Jesus, we are no longer denying ourselves. We are no longer witnessing to Christ. Vengeance is his. We represent the king who died for his enemies, who died at the hands of his enemies. Starting in verse 57, there's all these scenes of people who want to follow Jesus or he's inviting. And, and we don't know their names and we don't know how they responded. In other words, Luke is inviting us to put ourselves in their shoes. You know, when Jesus says to one, foxes have holes and 
birds, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You know, he's inviting us to consider, what am I willing to sacrifice to follow him? You know, and the next one who wants to say goodbye to his family, he, and, or, uh, sorry, bury his father, he, he's inviting us, how, where do my family commitments rank in terms of my obedience to Christ? The one who wants to say goodbye to his family, which is an interesting connection to Elijah, by the way. Um, Elijah went up on the mountain. He had this moment with God. God sends him down with another mission. And on the way, he meets this other guy named Elisha. And Elisha says, hey, I'll come with you. Just let me go say goodbye to my family first. Isn't that interesting? And Elijah says, great, go for it. He's good with it. So he goes and says goodbye, and then Elisha joins him. Here, Jesus says, you can't put your hand to the plow and look back. You won't be fit for my kingdom. It is intense, you guys. The message that is being given here is intense. And I am so grateful that the disciples stink at it. Are you? I'm so grateful that the disciples, like, they're, they're following Jesus. They're bumbling along. But they make mistakes at every step. Thank God. And they will leave him, and he will go to a mountain to die alone. Just like Moses, and in a similar way to Elijah. Elijah's sort of taken up from a mountain and doesn't die. And they never found Moses' body, by the way. They're not sure where he died. And the, the scriptures are careful to tell us about that. Both of these guys had sort of mysterious deaths. Maybe they never died. Maybe that's why they're there with Jesus on the mountain. But it also shows us such a contrast because over and over again throughout chapter 9, Jesus keeps saying, hey, I'm headed to Jerusalem to die. That's what I'm going to do. That's my plan. That's how this kingdom is going to come. There's a wonderful word that floats around, you know, traditional Christianity and theology um, that, you know, that comes to bear here. It's the word cruciform. Cruciform. That means cross-shaped, the form of a cross. Cruciform. And we are invited in this passage to shape our lives like cross. When we do that, it defies worldly logic. We walk in the glory and joy and freedom and pleasure of Jesus. And when we don't, we're simply not following him. We're going the other direction. We may have tasted of his power like the disciples did at the beginning of this chapter, but as soon as we hope that it will lead to our own, you know, credibility, our own reputation, as soon as we try to make it our own, we can no longer cast out the demon, so to speak. We can no longer show his victory. The brutal word here, other than cross, is daily. Daily. This week, um, there was, a, I don't know what a day it was, Wednesday. I just, you know, at the end of the day, I was like, man, I, I didn't get much done that today. I like, felt like, you know, I was so going in so many different directions. And I woke up the next morning. And this word was on my heart. It's from Lamentations, chapter 3. His mercies are new every morning. Every morning. And that's something that, that, that can only be discovered in the sadness of death. In denying ourselves. 
and realizing, ah, I have failed, but Lord, you are merciful every day. Him saying, take up our cross every day is both a sign of the cost and a sign of the great grace that he will give us to do this. Thank God that the disciples failed and failed and failed and failed again. Honestly, thank God for that because we are among them. And yet, most of these guys would later give their lives for the cause of Christ. Most of these guys would go on. Some of them would go on to rejoice when they were arrested and beaten for representing Jesus. That's the call we are given. Jesus doesn't just demonstrate the way. He doesn't just show us how to do it. He paves the way for us to do it. He unlocks the door. He demonstrates the reality of the situation. There are mountains and valleys in the life with Jesus. And when we experience the lowness of death, that's, I think, when we see the transfiguration at the top of the mountain. That's when we see it. When we take up the cross of self-denial, that's when we experience the joy of glory. It is glorious and it is glory both at the same time. And that is what is offered to us, brothers and sisters. How do we do that? I, I don't know. what it lo- No one's, no one's going to kill you tomorrow because you follow Jesus. Probably. That, that there's, it's not illegal right now. We deny ourselves as we pull away and pray, remember who we are with him, and then go and share our table with the last people we want to share it with. Be hospitable to the people that we don't want in our house. That's how we follow the way of Jesus. That's what he did for us. In fact, that's what he's doing for us right now. He's dining with his enemies and offering himself to us. On the very night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, take this and eat it, all of you. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And whenever we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, which is both our hope and our pattern. We get to join him in his death. As you come to this table, you are saying, I, I am willing to be crucified with Christ so that I would no longer live, but Christ would live in me. And he freely offers that to you. Lord, thank you for the example. Not just the example, thank you for making a way. Lord, thank you that though we are bumbling disciples who are constantly posturing and trying to put ourselves above others and judging others for their, how the way they're doing and whatever. Lord, though, though we are hesitant, though we want to turn our heads from the plow, though we want to go back and do things with our families, all of this, though we bumble along, still, you gather us around your table and offer yourself to us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we ingest you, 
as we take you into ourselves, that you, your life, your death, your resurrection would show itself in our lives. You freely give yourself to us. And so, Lord, with joy we freely receive. In Jesus' name, amen. So, church, I would invite you to come and receive the bread, which is the body of Christ given for you. And you'll take the bread and you'll dip it in the cup, which is the blood of Christ shed for you. Let's worship together as we come.